Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. It's our privilege and joy to have Hugh Wessel with us this evening. Hugh and Martine are wonderful friends of our congregation spanning uh, close to 45 years. They might be the longest supported missionaries, in fact, that we support, and uh, that's been since about 1979. Hugh and Martine met in 1969 while Hugh was serving in the U.S. Army in Munich, Germany, and they both came to faith in Christ at Labrie, Switzerland in 1972, and their wedding was officiated by Francis Schaeffer, which is interesting to many of us. The Wessels have served with MTW since 1979. Their initial charge was church planting, evangelism, and church renewal. They later founded the Marseille team. In 1989, Hugh was made country director for France and supervised teams with co-mission in Ukraine, if you remember that, after the Iron Curtain came down. In 1995, Hugh was asked to be MTW's European Regional Director. And MTW, by the way, is our denominational acronym for Mission to the World, which is our missions agency. Uh, Currently, Hugh serves in a role of consultant for research and development. In addition, he trains French pastors and lay people in evangelism and serves as seminary chaplain at the John Calvin Seminary in Aix-en-Provence, where he also teaches leadership, teamwork, cultural differences, missions, and street evangelism, all related to church planting. And he's on the board of the John Calvin Seminary as well, assisting indigenous ministries and several denominational committees. Martine has ministered through teaching Sunday school, using their home extensively for hospitality, uh, leading women's Bible study, and so on. And Martine and Hugh have three adult children and at at least four grandchildren, maybe more by now, I'm not sure. And this is a time to pray for them especially because of the situation in France with needing younger pastors to replace really hundreds of pastors who are in the process of retiring or about to retire. It's a real matter for prayer to be lifting before the Lord that he would raise up leadership in the Evangelical Reformed Church in France. Hugh, we're so glad you're here to minister the Word and tell us a little bit more about your work there. It's good to be back, as it was just announced by Dr. Light. We've been coming here since the mid-'70s when I was in seminary. My pastor was from Lancaster, somewhere, Lancaster County here, and he introduced me to the church as well as other churches in the area. I want to thank you all for your partnership with us over these years. Without your partnership, the ministry the Lord has called us to do wouldn't be possible. And we're thankful for the diverse ministries that you support. Thank you for your diverse gifts that you use to advance God's kingdom. And thank you again for your prayers interest in our ministry over the years. I want to thank the Lancaster Bible College for their band concert and the beauty of the music. It was very encouraging. I didn't get to see their faces, but I got to hear the music up here. And it was uh, 
a treat. I didn't know that was going to happen tonight. Our Lord God is sovereign. He's the one who established the basis for ministry and missions. And he gave an initial charge of mission to Adam and then to Eve. And if you'll turn with me to your Bibles, we'll read um, two passages in Genesis 1, verses 26 through the first half of verse 28. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on earth. And then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15 and reading through verse 24, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil shall not eat. For in that day that you eat, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man be alone. I shall make him a helper for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken for the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Thus far, the reading of God's word, I invite you to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is rich, deep, wide, and powerful. We thank you that your word is always accompanied by your Holy Spirit, and it does the work that you intended to do. It's used for our instruction to lighten our paths. It's used to show us who we are before you. It's also used at times to harden people's hearts as well as to soften. Now this evening, Father, we come to hear what you have to say to us through your word. And to that end, we know that we need your Holy Spirit to give us enlightenment and discernment. We pray that when we go out of this place later on, we'll be a little more like you, Jesus. For that's your will for us, that we be like you. We thank you that we can meditate your word and that you've given us this word to meditate for your glory and for our salvation. Amen. When Jesus was praying the high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. 
Jesus glorified his Father in heaven by his being that he was supposed to be, he was perfect, and by his doing. In Acts 13, 36, it tells us that David, when he had accomplished what God had given him to do, he died. That got me thinking about what God had established as the very beginning of time. God in his infinite wisdom, in his eternity, in his sovereignty, determined to make us in his image. That means, as an image bearer of God, we share in his eternity. We're going to share in his infinitude. When Christ returns, there'll be no end to his reign. I have a French colleague, and he said to me, Hugh, what are we going to do for all eternity? It'll get pretty boring after a while. My wife and I like to watch sometimes some sitcoms before we sleep, and one of the sitcoms we watched was The Good Place. And as the story unfolded, it became very clear everybody was bored. Their notion of The Good Place was they received all these material things they'd ever hoped for on earth. And after a million years, they were bored. They had no, nothing else they wanted to do. And so these are the best minds of Hollywood trying to conceive of what heaven could possibly be like. And they came up with nonsense, just more of the same stuff that people live for on earth. And at the very end of the season, you see these trees in the woods, and you had the option to go through that and disappear into some expanse because it was too boring to be in heaven according to Hollywood. Well, I would suggest to you that we have no idea what God has reserved for his people. And that you, because you're going to always have the opportunity to grow and learn because of God's eternity, you'll never be able to exhaust the riches of the things he's reserved for us. There'll always be something new. Nothing will ever become old to you. And you will always have that wondrous occasion to dialogue with God to learn from him and his ways and continue to rejoice in him. All that without sin or aging or tears or illness or sickness. And your ability to do things will increase so much. We will have no idea. That's why he says we have no idea what he's reserved for those who love him. Now, what's that got to do with missions? I think it has everything because God in his sovereignty chose to do that with you. That he gave himself a mission to create man in his image, to share in the very essence of who he is, his eternity, his infinitude. And then he creates man. And when he creates man, he creates him in his image, and he creates him, first of all, as Adam alone. Now, as I thought about this passage and what I just read, I realized something. I realized that there were five goals that God had established for mankind right there in the garden. And those goals were, are still in existence for us today. In fact, they're really important for each one of us. The first thing God did was when he made God and his man in his image, he then said to him, I want you to name the animals. And he brought the animals and the birds. Now, question, how long do you think it took Adam to figure out what the name should be? You think it was an afternoon? Was it a week? A month? 
I don't have any biblical basis to say it, but I would speculate that it probably took him several years. He had to go about it systematically. He had to observe. He had to take notes. He had to figure out what he was going to call each animal. And when he finished the job, he went back to God and said, hey, I finished the job you gave me to do. God said, great. What did you come up with? And he gives him the names, and God says, this is really good. Now, that's the first time after God had created that we know that anything that God didn't create was created by someone in his image. It was only that Adam. He created something that didn't exist before. The names of the animals, and God pronounced it very good. Little sidetrack. That means the things that you do, the things that you create, the inventions you make, the poetry you write, the music you play. That's never existed before. The interpretation that we heard tonight was the first time in history that it had ever been interpreted that way in this type of auditorium, with this acoustic, with these special young people. If they were to come back and play it tomorrow, it would sound different, at least to their director, because they changed. Their ability to play it has changed. It was an interpretation that was original and new. God gave Adam that ability to reflect and to think. Now, something else that happened to Adam, he said, but I've got a problem. And God says, tell me what your problem is. He says, you don't correspond to me. There's something, we're in good, we're in good terms. We talk all the time. I report back to you what I've discovered. But this, you and I are different. And none of the animals correspond to me. And I see they have partners, if you want, that correspond to them. And, and I have this, something's missing in me. Now, parenthesis, when he made Adam, he made him perfect. And yet he made him with something missing. Okay? Now, men are kind of slow, at least I am, to understand things. So it had taken Adam several years to figure this out. And he finally comes to God and said, here's what you asked me to do. I did it, but and I finally figured out something's missing. And God says, okay, sleep. When he wakes up, there's Eve. And Adam goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Ah, now note, Adam could have said, that's not bad as a prototype. Create a few other ones and I'll choose the one I like the best. You know, give me a blonde, a brunette, a redhead. I'll decide out of the other models you're going to make me. Because of his relationship with God, he trusted God, and he knew that what God had done was perfect for him. Now put yourself in the place of Eve. Hey guys, I just got here, and you're passing me around like I'm an object. Give me a break. What's going on here? No, Eve didn't say that, because God had made her different. God had made her with a possibility to intuitively understand the situation, and she knew that she was to give herself to Adam and to entrust herself to Adam. And so Adam took Eve as a gift from God, and Eve gave herself as a gift from God to a man. And the two become one flesh. Now the bedrock principle I want to underline here for the mission of man is marriage that God created there in the garden. And the goal of marriage, the very first goal of marriage, is for you to always reflect the unity and diversity of the Trinity. God is three persons, he's one God. When God brings two people together, they become one flesh. But it's not just intimacy, it becomes psychological, historical, philosophical, creative. 
and they become one. And God says, I hate divorce. Why would God say I hate divorce? Because you're supposed to reflect the unity within the diversity of the Godhead in your marriage. And that means if you divorce, you're saying that God can be ripped apart. And God's saying, no, this is my image. We are three persons but one God. And I've made you so you can understand it. And what binds it all together is love. That's why later on in the New Testament, Paul says to people, be filled with ardent compassion, you God's holy and elect people in Colossians 3. Be filled with ardent compassion. Be spontaneously generous and good to one another. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. If you have a complaint against someone, forgive them the way Christ forgave you. Bear with each other and cover it all in love. That's a paraphrase of Colossians 3, 12 to 14. That notion is key to what God has given you as a mission. You who are married people, you are to reflect the unity and diversity of the Godhead in everything you say, do, and imagine. And you're not allowed to divorce. Now, does that mean God won't forgive you if you get divorced or if you've been divorced? Of course he will. But nevertheless, it's an image that God gives because it's a testimony before the unseen world. And what is that unseen world? The angels who don't have that privilege to understand the image of God the way you do. And it's a testimony against the enemy of our souls, Satan. Because what does Satan want to do? He wants to destroy you. And the reason he wants to destroy you, you're the body of Christ. And he's our head. And because of the oneness of Christ with us, our union with Christ, every time we do something wrong, it's a blow to Jesus Christ. Every time we do something, the head feels it. And everywhere in the world where the church is persecuted, Christ is receiving that and his sufferings increase. Not the vicarious sufferings, those are the sufferings of him on the cross, but his sufferings of being one with his people. Just as you who are parents, when one of your children are sick, or they fall, or something happens, you suffer. But our Lord God, the oneness he has with us in Christ, he feels it and he suffers. You're never abandoned, never alone. And he's saying, you maintain this oneness because Satan wants to destroy you. And what did Satan do? If you, there's a, two, two prophecies. There's an Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. One's against the king of Babylon and the other one the king of Tyre. Tyre. Forgive me, sometimes I confuse my French with English. The king of Tyre. And in Babylon, you can read that, that prophecy in Isaiah 14 where this king, and it sounds like Satan speaking when you read the passage around verse 14 and following, is, I will do this, I will do this, I will do that, and I will do this five times in two verses. And what he's saying, I'm going to go up on the mountain of God, and I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to do these things. And God judges the king of Babylon. You go to the prophecy in Ezekiel against Tyre, and you see a similar thing about you were a perfect created being. You were like a shining gem, and yet it went to your head, and your commerce became corrupt, etc. And so while we don't have an exact application that this was the way Satan was being addressed, it's a pretty good application. And Satan wants you to be divided. He wants to introduce a second will into the universe, into your couple, into you who are married, to destroy your mission, to get you off task. 
See, when you're on a mission, when I was in the army, we had missions to accomplish. And we couldn't say, well, I don't feel like doing that today. We had an objective to accomplish, to get someplace at a certain time, to do a certain task. And we didn't say, well, you know, right now there's an obstacle and I can't get it done. We had to overcome the obstacles. We had to figure out how to accomplish the mission. There were different levels of mission, don't get me wrong. We weren't, you know, generals of armies. Nevertheless, we had missions. And God has given you all that mission to reflect his unity and diversity. And that's a rational understanding of what marriage is. It's the bedrock principle of what a marriage should be. We were going to maintain our unity and our diversity no matter what happens. We're never going to be split, ever. In fact, when you do have your disagreements, when you find yourself at odds with your spouse, what's happening is a second, you have two wills conflicting. When things are going well, you're on the same page. And every time you have a conflicting two wills, you have to overcome that for the sake of the glory of God, because that's your mission. And if you don't, you're off mission. The second thing God did was, he says in this passage we read, he says, I want you to multiply and fill the earth with people. In other words, he wants you to establish a family. Now, we know because of the fall, not everyone can, but normally when people get married, they want to have children and establish a family. Another way to summarize that, he wants you to make little ones into your image. Because God made you perfectly in his image, he wants you to do the same thing with your children. He gives you a great responsibility. Even as he gave that responsibility to Adam to name the animals, he says, okay, I'm going to give you the gift of children, and I'm counting on you to make them my image as well, teaching them my ways. If you want to multiply a godly inheritance... Now, that goes into covenant theology, and we don't have time to talk about one of the reasons we baptize our children as infants, which we do. And we do that because we don't leave our children to decide for themselves. How many times my Baptist friends say, well, I'm not going to impose on my child. I'm going to let them decide. They go, well, then don't feed them anymore. It's imposing on them. Well, don't speak to them because you're going to impose your language. Let them decide which language they want to speak. Don't educate them because, oh, no, no, that's different. Why is it different? Of course you impose your faith on your children. You pray with them and for them from the youngest age. They grow up in a household of believers, your household, and they confess Christ all the time by not refusing the grace. In fact, I tell people sometimes, I can guarantee your little Johnny or Susie will confess Jesus Christ right from the beginning. Why can I guarantee it? Just like I can guarantee, unless there's a handicap, I can guarantee it just the way I can guarantee your little Johnny and Susie are going to learn English in America. And they're not going to learn Chinese, unless you happen to be a Chinese family. You're going to speak English. My wife speaks French to our children. They grew up speaking French. You know, I grew up, they grew up speaking French and English because I'm an American. She's French. We impose all the time. And so these little disciples. We raise them as disciples of God to multiply that godly inheritance so that they grow up understanding they have to maintain oneness with God also. 
That's why they get disciplined. That's why when they don't obey, they've introduced a second will, the way Satan wants to introduce that second will. And they have to be taught, sometimes disciplined, so that that second will doesn't divide the family, divide the parents, or hurt the church. But you know all this. You know all these things intuitively. That's why you find people all over the world disciplining their children. So that's the reason of being of marriage, God's mission, reflect unity and diversity. That's the bedrock principle. But the reason of being, all right, in French, raison d'être, the reason for that is so you can establish a godly inheritance. Then God goes on with the mission to Adam and Eve, and he gives them three tasks. One will give them intellectual satisfaction, one will give them emotional satisfaction, one will give them spiritual satisfaction. The intellectual satisfaction, he says, I want you to take care of the creation for me. I want you to tend the garden. And what you have there is you have a whole program of ecology. You have a whole program of how to reflect analogically what God has done in his creation. And so we don't ever do anything and cut corners as much as we're able to care. We don't cut down something just to destroy it. We can use it, but we don't do more than we have to. We care for God's creation. We reflect his holiness in what we do. We're amazed. We think through things. We think, how will this have an impact? What am I supposed to do? And then when we work by caring for his creation, we do the very best we can to create something or to do something to honor him. When we were converted to Libri, I was given the task of caring for the Libri Chapel. And it was a big surface area. It was probably, I don't know, 50 feet wide and maybe 100 feet long, 500 square feet. They didn't give me any tools to clean it, so I did it on my hands and knees. One day I decided to wax the floor on my hands and knees and then walk around with (laughs) these woolen socks and polish. It took me 10 hours. And and the people at Bree said, wow, this is so beautiful. Why did you do that? I said, to glorify God and to make it pleasant for you to come in and see it. Could I have just passed the mop and walked out? Yeah, probably. But it was a lesson because of what I thought I was trying to reflect to other people, something of his glory, caring. And that's what Labrie was about. Edith Schaefer wrote a book, Hidden Art. And she tried to talk in that book about reflecting always the beauty of God's creation, to bring honor and glory to him. And it gave me great rational satisfaction to do my work. When I drive a car, I try to think of all the things I have to do. I used to drive taxis in New York City. And when that happens, your brain gets rewired, by the way. They did autopsies on London cabbie drivers. And it's things you can learn, you do. And you, you learn how to drive differently than if you don't live in a big city as a taxi driver. And I said, how can I serve the Lord this way? And I realized I could concentrate on many things. And therefore, I actually was able to witness the passengers. It didn't distract me that I had to drive because my brain had been rewired. I said, Lord, you know, bring the right people so I have them captive for at least 10, 20 minutes and let's see what I can witness. I was in seminary at the time. I tried to think, how can I do this to please you? How can I drive in a way that glorifies you? Paul summarizes everything you do, even eating and drinking, do it for the glory of God. There's nothing 
then I can say that I'm allowed to do for myself if it doesn't glorify God. I have to do everything to glorify Him. Nothing escapes it. Now I fail. And when I fail, I've disappointed my Father and I've disappointed the Lord Jesus who gave His life for me. And when I fail, I'm off mission, okay? When I have an argument with my wife and I get frustrated and sometimes angry, I'm failing God. And I'm not doing what he calls me to do. Caring for the creation, caring for everything we do. It's a lifelong activity. If, if you're a homemaker and you have to, you're making meals, maybe the caring would be studying a little bit about how different the chemistry of food that you're dealing with blends together and you look for tastes. And then when you serve your meal, you serve it on china and not just plastic to throw away. You care for everything. And it gives you great, great emotional, I mean, great intellectual satisfaction. And then he moves on and he says, the reason that I created you is that the two will have a companion together. You need each other. When I said that he created Adam and Adam was missing something, that was a blessing to Adam. He did not have everything he needed to live in this world, not just to found a family. He needed someone, and God gave that gift in Eve, and he deliberately chose to make them different, hierarchical of values that are different. I was interviewing a couple one time. They had four children. They were interested in missions. We were talking, the children started to come home, and so we went down to a cafe, and it was in Tennessee. And the guy drove really poorly. He couldn't maintain his line, and he was too close to the cars, and he made abrupt movements and stuff. So we get to the cafe, and I say, does your wife ever criticize you? He says, yeah. Does she ever, for instance, criticize your driving? He says, yeah, all the time. I say, well, forgive me, but she's right to because you're a poor driver. Now, you can imagine this because I've never met a man who thinks he's a bad driver. Every man I've ever met thinks he drives really well, and that's just not true. And again, you'd have to be a taxi driver in New York to appreciate that, or a race car driver. Somebody knows how to drive, like, professionally. And he was taken back, and I said, but why do you think she's criticizing you? It's because... You're meant to complete each other, and she's entrusting her life and the life of the children to you. And so when she criticizes you, she's saying, I'm scared. You're taking away my security, which is a high value for me. I need to be, inse- I need to be secure with you. Just like you, she needs to know you're not going to look at other people and desire them, other women. I want to be safe with you. And so your goal is to drive so your wife would be able to sleep if she wanted to. And I turned to the wife and I said, does your husband ever get upset with you when you criticize him? Oh, yeah, all the time. I said, well, why do you think he's upset? What do you mean? I said, he's upset because you're not respecting him. He wants to be respected. And you're making your respect for him contingent on his performance. And you're giving conditions when he needs to be respected by at least one person in his life. So when you have to criticize him, do it with respect. Don't do it with lack of respect and build him up. And when you have to do something for your wife, do it in such a way that she feels cherished by you. Because 
Your job is to cherish your wife, and your job is to respect your husband. That doesn't mean that men don't want to be cherished somehow, and women don't need, they need to be respected. But out of all the values, they're, more, they're in different order for men and for women. And so as you live together, and my wife and I have been together 52 years, there becomes a complicity and a companionship. At this point in my life, the only thing I want for, as a gift from my wife that she stays with me another year. That's the only thing I want. I don't want anything else. And I want to cherish her. Does she make it easy? Not always. But it's because of my character that it doesn't make it easy. And so there's always this going back and forth. But by God's grace, we've overcome a lot of obstacles. And his companionship is something that God desired to give you. And he gave that to you so you could combat this isolation. And so you're on mission and he's giving you great emotional satisfaction. The fifth area is actually Christ and the church. You have to go to Ephesians 5, where Paul writes about it, saying, this is a great mystery, marriage. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. And Christ gave his life for the church. And the mystery is great. Why is marriage like Christ and the church? Because we as men, we have to be willing to die for our families. That gives security. And when you're willing to step up and die for someone, they know you're, they love you. They know you're loved. And we're supposed to imitate Christ. And then the church is supposed to submit in reverence to Christ without any reserve. Again, when I see people, there are men who are not willing to die for their families. They walk away. Or I see women who are not willing to live for the welfare of their family the way they criticize. God has given five missions to each of us to accomplish if we're married. Reflect the unity and diversity of the Trinity and never break that. The reason for being, establish a godly inheritance, a family. Care for the creation, which gives you intellectual satisfaction. Complete one another mutually where you have your lacks, gives you great emotional satisfaction and reflect Christ in the church. Those five goals are the mission that God established for man in the very beginning. And from those mission, all other kinds of missions will flow later on throughout the scriptures. Not everyone's going to be called to become a missionary, but everybody is called to live that way who are married and to give witness And when a marriage is working well, you're giving a strong witness because the world sees that and they see your light is shining in the darkness. Jesus Christ came and he accomplished what the Father had given him to do. When David had finished what God had given him, he died. None of us are called to do what David did or what Jesus did but we all are called to the mission that God gave us to reflect who he is in a dark and dying world. May the Lord grant you that grace to live that way. And may the Lord grant you to remember anything that was useful for you tonight so that you can continue to grow in your Christ-likeness. Amen. Father, thank you for these few instances that meditate on your word and that initial mission you gave to mankind. We all recognize we have weaknesses, that we need one another. But Father, we thank you that what marriage is for each of us is a real mission. 
and it becomes the basis for everything else we do. For if our marriages are not what you want them to be, we're not qualified for other missions. And then when we get off mission, Satan rubs its hands and you weep. And I pray that each one of us will remember to bring glory and honor to you by doing everything for your glory and honor. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.